Hi, my name is Martin Purnell, and welcome to Off Grid Christianity, a weekly podcast for those who go or don't go to church and for those that are disillusioned. This podcast series is to encourage via conversation and not necessarily change your mind prior to listening. You can contact us as well by email, ogc at accessradio.biz, business spelled B-I-Z. Check out our Facebook page, Off Grid Christianity, and we have our own website now, offgridchristianity.co.uk. So please enjoy today's guest. He was a member of a Christian band in the 60s called The Unfettered, a time when hanging around in Christian coffee bars was big business. Our guest was also instrumental in the setting up of a Christian music-based fanzine-type newsletter, and Buzz magazine was born. Buzz and British Youth for Christ then get together and spring harvest as a result of their labours. Our guest started his business career, by the way, in a London advertising agency. So many years later... How does he feel about being heavily involved in starting businesses such as Key Records that morphed into Kingsway, a Christian Bible-based learning week called Spring Harvest, coming on board to get London's first Christian radio station and see Buzz magazine still going strong but now known as Premier Christianity? All these questions. It gives me great pleasure to welcome to Off Greek Christianity, Peter Meadows. Peter, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank for this. you. No, it's, thank it's, you. This is great. I almost believe that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't make any of it up either. I know that a certain person by the name of Tony Cummings will be listening to this podcast because he was a previous guest. As oh well. dear, Tony. Tony, you mentioned Tony. So we were looking at Buzz Magazine. We were looking for an assistant editor, and we're very. We'd never seen him. We'd never seen him, but we knew he reviewed all this black gospel music. Yes, and we heard his voice, which was on the phone. So we were conv- so we hired him without ever seeing him, and we were convinced when he turned up he'd be black. Yes, and we were very disappointed he was white. It was a great disappointment to us—the jolly green giant mm. that is Tony, <laughs> with his soft Plymouth accent. Yeah. yeah, it's brilliant. So here we go then. Five standard questions. Question number one, good sir: If you could invite anybody from history for an evening meal, alive or dead, so that you could ask them questions, who would it be? I realise that you want someone well known, but actually. My first choice would be my father because we had, well, I never knew him. He died when I was 17. I don't think he ever spoke a word to me from the age of 11 onwards. That's my age of 11 onwards. It may be because I was a war baby. Mm -hmm. He was missing for the first three years of my life. It may be he should never have been a a father. Uh, I don't know, but I was never, there's so many questions I'd like to ask him as to why, you know, help me understand. Because it was a very, very unsatisfactory uh, situation. The weird thing, when I was about seven, I had a bad twitch and I was a bedwetter and I was taken to a child psychologist who got me to draw a picture of my family, very clever. And when it was done, they said, uh, so where's your father? Oh, I I forgot to draw him. So that kind of shows how absent he was in my life. So I'd love to. But if you wanted a famous person, I, I, I guess it would be either Hannibal who got his elephants over the Alps. He was a great hero mm-hmm. of mine. I know nothing about him other than he got elephants over the Alps. And to me, that is like a mega achievement. How, what enabled him? I'd like to learn from yeah. him. How did you do such a ridiculous, amazing thing? But the real serious one would be Nelson Mandela, to sit down with Mandela, who, by sheer character, yes. transformed a situation of injustice and white oppression. That, that would be my choice. And I think we'd... Uh, We'd have some good South African food and some good conversation. Definitely. Maybe a nice bottle of South African red or something to go with it as well. It would be go well, yeah. 
I'd let him choose the wine. From his own wine cellar, he could pay for it as well, sort of. He probably could, yeah. Three great answers. I have to say, the first answer is is the best, though. No offence to Mr Mandela or Hannibal. It's the one that would impact my life the most, because I've never been able to make sense of it. So what do you know about him, if you don't mind me asking? Uh, I know that he was the very opposite to me. Mm-hmm. He was a very good sportsman, footballer, very good sportsman, a brilliant dancer, could play piano by ear, had a beautiful singing voice. His handwriting was perfect. Wow. So, so I was a huge disappointment to him because I was none of those things. I can't hold, can't hold a tune in a bucket and um, uh, in, in terms of my handwriting. And, and I'm, I, I'm actually got a, a mild dyslexia, which, which doesn't help. Mm-hmm. So, so we, we were very, very different people. But, but I, I'd like to say, why did you never, ever at any point say, I, forget saying you love me. What about telling me I did well at something? Yeah. That was a major reaction to me as to why I was such a waste of time at school, because I was looking for the affirmation and attention there that I didn't get at home. So I, that my parents, particularly my mother, was very upset that she had to keep coming to school and persuading them to keep me on. I think there was something behind that. I'd love to have those conversations. And it, maybe it was the war that damaged him, or maybe it was in those days you married because you married and it wasn't mm-hmm. you know, a marriage you should have had. Don't know. There's so many people. I, I can hold my hand on that one about the, the way the parents treated me growing up and everything else like that. Well, it was cultural yeah. then. What did he do in the war, Peter? He was a soldier. He was just a foot soldier. Died of, died of cancer when I was 17 because then they smoked because it was healthy. Tragic, really. Yeah. Well, that's a great answer. Thank you. If I can organise it, I will. Thank you, if you could. Question two. Who is your favourite biblical character or favourite biblical story or favourite parable, Peter? To give me just one is cruel, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, where would I go? But my favourite parable will be the lost son. Okay, because? Which I just love because I, I love that moment in it where the, where the son has come to his senses mm-hmm. and he's heading home smelling of pigs, just, you you know, no one's ever picked it up. I mean, this guy smells, you know, and he's and he's making the journey. Yeah. The father sees him afar off, so he's been looking. And now they're, they're traveling towards each other. And then the, the son's mind are the words, I'll be a servant, I'll be a hired hand, I'll be a servant, I'll be a hired hand. And then the father, as he rush, rushes towards him, which is very undignified for an adult person in that culture to do, is going... My son, my son, my son, and hugs him, you know. Yes. I read a little, a, a, this little book just recently where, where the little quote came from. It says, we believe Jesus comes close, but we think he holds his nose, you know. And I go, it doesn't, you know. So, so I, I love it for that, I suppose. Yeah. If I had a second choice, it would be the Emmaus Road. I love the journey uh-huh. of these two people for whom the world has utterly collapsed. You can't imagine anyone whose life yeah. has more collapsed than these two people, utterly confused, leaving the scene of it all. And Jesus steps alongside and starts mm. to walk with them. Doesn't stand in front of them and say, you've got it wrong. Doesn't do what we would do, you know, grab them by the shoulders and give them a shake. He just steps in and has a conversation with them. Yes. And by the time they're through, they've gone, ah, oh, now we see it. And they go back transformed. And the third, I'm being greedy here. Go for it. No, please, go for it. Is, is Peter walking on the water? Because mm-hmm. I think he's had a very bad press. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, if, if people would kind of say, if you want an example of failure in the Bible, that's failure. And, and I go, uh, well, actually, Jesus said, 
it says he began to walk. Now, I don't know how many steps a began to walk are, but there's at least two there. Yes. And I don't know anyone else in history other than Jesus who's had two steps on water. That's very good. So to, to me, he's a great inspiration. Yeah. That we don't always reach our objectives, but if we if we go for something big, we're going to get closer than if we'd stayed in the boat yeah. where the real failures were. I told you I fell. I used to be a, a training officer, and we used to talk quite a, a lot about certain things like this, and one of them was failure. You only failure when you give up. Peter didn't actually give up. You know, he kept on going, even though he might have thought, oh, I am a failure. He didn't actually give up, and look what happened as a result of it. So that, that's very good. No, no, no. He, he did, did all, all right. right. Interesting that you said the Emmaus Road. If I could just flag a previous episode that came out a couple of weeks ago, actually. If I could flag up that episode. It's Jesus and the, the women in the, the Gospels, uh, episode 59. And we talk about the Emmaus Road and whether it was like a husband and wife or whatever. Yeah, it's figured it might well be a husband and wife there. Yeah, it's, a, it's an amazing story. And it's true as well. That's the other thing as well. We forget that sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Michael Harvey, also a few episodes back, he chose the prodigal son. And I didn't ask him the question, which I will now ask you. Regarding the prodigal son, who was the most disappointed to see the prodigal son return? The calf. No! You know that joke, don't you? Very good. Very good. Yeah, yeah. There's a well-known evangelist whose name I'm not going to give you, who turned up for a major crusade uh, in India. Yes. And they had the reading of the prodigal son before he came to preach. And it said they killed the fatted cow. The cow is the sacred animal. Yes. He was on the next plane home. No. Yeah. And he's a name you would know. Question three, Peter. If you were prime minister for the day and could change any law or impose a new law, what would it be, good sir? Well, I, I thought hard about that. One of the major issues, I'm being serious, one of mm. the major issues today is facing those people who are in care. Yes. You might know something about that. Not really, no. My, my wife died nearly five months ago, and the period of, of her illness mm -hmm. was a fight as to whether I was going to have to fund all that myself. I've got a yes. good friend now whose wife is, is, is in a home because of dementia. It's shredding him. So something needs to be done. But I think more in line with the kind of thought of your question, the thing I'd most, the law I'd most like to pass, I, I want that sorted, yes. is that I, I believe that every MP and every senior civil servant should spend three months living on minimum wage on a sink estate uh, in disguise. Mm -hmm. You know the TV series of The Undercover Boss, whatever it's called? Yeah, it was, Where yes. the guy goes in, they don't know who he is. Suddenly, the shock is he gets as to what life is really like. Yes. And I think those people uh, at that sort of level, and I mean civil servants as well because they have such power, they should get an understanding of what it's really like for some people, yes. you know, to be living in that situation. I think they did that on Channel 4 here in the UK, a couple of months ago something like that or maybe a year or so ago where they got an mp and they had to go and live in a well they should all do it that's my view every single one of them and it's a shame boris has already gone because i'd like him to have done it as well that would have been very interesting to see how he would have uh, wheedled himself out of that one not that i'm saying he would have, of course have done that no 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 you very kindly shared what happened five months ago how are you coping at the moment peter i'm doing fine thank you i'm doing fine i could talk for hours on this or no please please go ahead my wife was uh, was diagnosed with terminal cancer September last year. They said something like 18 months, round of chemotherapy, which didn't do much. And then she had a series of strokes 
if she hadn't have had the cancer, the strokes would have meant she'd have been bedridden for years back into that problem I've just described. The cancer was a gift to her, which took her life within nine months. And we, we were never closer. The Lord's my shepherd, you know, as I walked through the valley of the shadow of death, genuinely God walked with us. And that may sound super spiritual, but because there were times when if you look closely at the situation, there was no God. If you look closely at what was going on, mm -hmm. it was utter, utter, utter shit. You know, it was gross. But if you stood back from the picture and looked at all that happened in 50 years of our life together and then came closer and saw the way people had gathered around us, cared for us, watched over us, prayed for us, supported us. And then uh, the remarkable thing, we had... Uh, we had carers in four times a day and a night team as well. She was really poorly. I mean, the strokes really left her not able to do hardly anything at all. We had the eight, the eight o'clock team come in uh, on a Wednesday and uh, Rosie was so out of it. I just said to them, look, please go, please go. And half an hour later, I realized they were still in, still in the house. I said, you've got to go. And one of them who was new, they were all from sort of Kenya, or th those sort of places. They were yeah. they were lovely carers. And this girl, Jane, who'd been with them only a few days, she said, no, we want to pray with you. Wow. So I said, we're up for that. My daughter was there at the time, who's a lovely Christian. She, she lay on the bed with Rosie and held her hand. Rosie knew. Hearing is the last thing to go for someone who's in their final days. Mm -hmm. They gathered around. We held hands. This girl, young girl, Jane, prayed. Wow. And she prayed. And I don't mean loud. I don't mean penty. I just mean she knew what she, she knew, the God she was talking to, and knew what she wanted. And a sense of peace came. R remarkable. In the middle of the night, about four o'clock, the night watchman called me and said, um, Rosie's breathing's changed. And I came, sat alongside her, and said what I said to her a number of times. Honey, I love you. I love you. I love you. It's going to be different, but we're going to be all right because mm -hmm. we'll take care for one another. And if you want to go to Jesus, now is a good time to go. And with a minute, she just coughed and stopped breathing. It was beautiful for all I'd feared. Wow. So, yeah, God was with us. And how am I now? Well, um, it's, it's very different. The least of my problems is, is if I want a pork chop, you've got to buy four. That's the, that's the least of but it's 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 like everything is coupled. It's it's learning to live differently. The way I describe it is a bit poetic. The great thunderstorm of grief has gone, uh, but there are occasional showers, and I've learned to dance in them. Those moments of grief are good, you know. Drink them in because they they remind you of all the good, and it's valuable. And if you don't have them, there's something strange. So uh, the worst thing is when I'm in the car. It's getting a bit better now. In the car, all by yourself. I keep the windows up and I shout and scream, yeah. and then we're all right. So I'm, I'm learning to live again. I'm helped by family close, good friends. And uh, I, we, we, we have a, an apartment in Spain, which essentially was Rosie's gift to me. It was She made it possible and done everything. And there's a church there, uh, English-speaking church, which I'm part of. I'm their spiritual advisor. Wow. So that's good. And I've been incredibly productive during the last four or five months. So it's I'm tired, but it's all it's all right. It's all right, Martin. Thank you, because you're most probably aware I had to leave Christian Radio 20 years ago to look after my wife. Yeah, and I'm and, and I'm interested in your story because cancer is part of your. It is cancer of what? Uh, thyroid. Cancer of the thyroid. Now this is now this is very interesting to me because Rosie had thyroid cancer, 
were in her early 30s. Oh, wow. And had the thyroid removed and radioactive iodine, which wiped all the thyroid from her body. That's it. And then she was on thyroxine. Yeah. But didn't affect eyesight or anything. But I got the impression from you that the two are linked. Ah, no. Uh, my wife, Alison... She's got what is called retinitis pigmentosa. That's a genetic thing. Okay, quite separate. Yeah, completely. But for those who don't know with the thyroid, that is like if you were a motor car, this is your engine. This sends out all yeah. the power to every part of the car that needs it. Peter, if you don't mind me asking a few more questions on this, I know every so often on these podcasts, these five questions, then morph into something completely different. If you don't mind, perhaps you could just share a little bit more for those no. listening today who are going through grief what it's like and how you were able to just come through it with your faith, please. I think my experience is grief. Grief is not a cookie cutter. It's not mm-hmm. the same for everyone. But different people experience it in different ways. Our makeup, our emotional makeup is different. The cause of death is different. Our experiences are different. So I, I don't think that what anyone has experienced is a, a model for anyone else. And I don't think what I've gone through. I mean, I was... Uh, relieved I found I, I had a friend whose wife had died 18 months earlier they were great friends are very similar within 10 days of Rosie dying I had lunch with him because they yeah. said Simon you've you, you've done well and so he was my encouragement that it was possible to do well but then there's this organization called Mari Stokes which is for for grief and people going through grief um, bereavement and somehow I got on the mailing list <laughs> in the early days because I thought I was going to need it. And now I get their weekly newsletter, which is just full of people for whom three years later they can't get out of bed. And I and I just feel for them. I, I think the thing for us is that we'd, we'd managed before the strokes totally destroyed Rosie. We managed to have good conversations. We knew what was happening. It wasn't a shock. We were quite open. We'd had good conversations. There was nothing needing to be said. I had people trying to keep me busy. They said, if you feel bad, try and keep busy. And my answer was, that didn't work for me. I actually wanted to experience grief. I think grief is a gift of God, a bit like a valve on a pressure cooker. It's good grief. If you wallow in it with self-pity, that's not going to get anywhere. But I would say, absorb it, take it, cherish it. Be grateful for the grief because it's a reminder of what you've lost. Yeah. If Rosie was still here... In light of my introduction and saying everything you've achieved so far, I wonder what she, she would have said to that. She'd have said she's very proud of me. She was very proud of me. She was someone who never went on a platform, didn't want to. She was, she was someone who, who gathered people around her. She was a huge affiliator of Mother Anne. I mean, she had so many friends. We, we had a celebration of her life, which was attended by wow. 500. And it's, it's, had, a, it's had about, nine, about 800 views on YouTube. Wow. I mean, that tells you something about this person that yeah. no one's ever heard of. She would tell people, when we met people that I didn't know, she would tell them about me, and I was quite embarrassed. So she was very, she was, she was proud of me. That's yeah. a phenomenal thing to say. I, I think that's brilliant. Peter, thank you for that. Question four. Outside of family events, what has been your most enjoyable day out, please, Peter? And, and that's really hard because mm. the kind of family I've just described, most of the stuff is, is family events. I mean, we did family events. I mean, we celebrated all our naught birthdays, our ruby wedding. Well, uh, some people don't understand, but uh, a, a ruby Murray is a curry, all yes. right? So we we did. We had all our friends in for a ruby Murray, 
and lots of people got dressed up in saris and stuff. We had about 80 people there, including wow. some people you'll have interviewed here. We had Indian catering for the best Indian caterers in the area. I got a little Bollywood dance team in and uh, and taught us all to, all to do Bollywood dancing, Bangla Bangla. Oh, fantastic. For our Golden, which was only three years ago, delayed several times because of COVID, mm. we had a, had a garden. We had a, uh, a Spanish fiesta uh, with a big paella. Oh. So, but if you were to ask about a day, yeah, I would have said that one of the nicest days was just with Rosie in South Africa. We, I, I managed to get some travel into her. She didn't like change. She didn't like travel until she got there and then loved it and glad I pushed it. And we did Cape Town and the Garden Route, uh, which was lovely. But we had a day in a little little small town called Franschhoek, a small wine town just outside. And I timed it so we arrived in time for the farmer's market, which was gorgeous. The village was beautiful. We did some wine tasting. We had a meal in the evening. Talk some people in the beautiful bed and breakfast where we were staying. It was just, it was just a lovely day. Yes, which is lovely. Noel Richards, who you must probably know quite well. Oh well, yeah. He tells the story of how they were doing a gig in South Africa and they were taking back to the bed and breakfast. And that night they decided, right, let's just raid the the mini bar because we just need to relax. And uh, they suddenly realised they were staying in a Christian bed and breakfast, and it was on all non-alcoholic wine. That was tough. Yeah. That was tough. We see these bed and breakfasts there are amazing. Anyone who goes and stays in hotels are daft. They're they're like bed and breakfast on on you know on steroids. Uh, just beautiful service, beautiful people. Colonial. So you, at four o'clock they'll probably put sherry out. They have an honesty fridge. You know. Really. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Brilliant. It was nice. Yeah. Missed that. That was our favourite place. Oh, wonderful. I'm glad you explained it. When you said you, you brought in a Bollywood, I thought you said a Bollywood darts team. I'm thinking... No, dance, no, it was Bangla Banga, Bangla Banga. No, no, no. Nothing to do with throwing arrows at a dartboard. A, no. a Bollywood darts team, that would have been interesting as well. But, no, that sounds a fantastic way of doing it. Yeah, and for those who are saying, who was Ruby Murray? Well, funny enough, she was from Northern Ireland. She was a singer. She was, yeah. Before my time, but a very popular singer in those days. Ruby Murray. But we had friends there who said, what's going on? They didn't understand, particularly American friends. They didn't get it at all. But uh, there you go. We explained it. It was good. Friday night, going to go down for a ruby. Excellent. Question five. What has been your most embarrassing moment to date then, please, Peter? The most embarrassing was walking off the front of the stage when I was preaching. Tell me more. And landing at the feet of the front row. Tell me more. <laughs> it was actually, I, I wasn't quite preaching. It was... Um, uh, it was uh, the Friends Meeting House um, in Euston Road. It was a it was a MG, M- M- Buzz Magazine presentation. Uh, lights out in the audience. Uh, just a spotlight on me. I'm holding the microphone, and uh, as I'm talking, I'm walking towards the sta- the microphone stand on the left to put it on for the next person. You know the cartoons. You know Road Runner runs yeah. off the edge of a cliff, looks down, realizes in the air and falls. It was like that for me. I, I went. <laughs> I've just passed the microphone stand. That means I'm no longer on the bang. <laughs> and I hit the deck. Ooh. It was, I wasn't injured. Oh, wow. Rosie came bursting from backstage going, his glasses, his glasses, his glasses. Some people from our church were in the front row and they thought it was intentional. That's how bright they were. And I got <laughs> up and said, uh, I'm sorry, I'll start that again. <laughs> it wasn't a great moment. Please tell me someone recorded it so we can see it. No, 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 no. It was, it was a long time ago. Uh... <laughs> Brilliant. Well, listen, thank you so much for those answers. I think you've actually created a world record. That's the longest it's taken to do five questions, and it's brilliant. I'm afraid I am very gobby. Not at all. A lot has been revealed. And in, in light of that, 
when I was doing a bit of research, I thought, oh, this is a great quote. And I, I thought we're going to get on well here because um, you were talking about your, your startup, you know, when you were trying to get Buzz Magazine going and you were like renting this place. And you said the place was uh, full of hot and cold running mice, which I thought was a, a great quote. So looking yeah. back on the 60s and the startup, you know, if you were going to do it again today, what would you do differently? Well, everything, because everything's different today. Um, we wouldn't have done the magazine. We'd have been online. Mm-hmm. We'd have, uh, everything would have been different. But what, what marked it then was we're on a cusp of something. I mean, it was, it, it was a great era. People no longer waltzed. You know, yes. Uh, pe- people no longer wore smart clothes of an evening. It was it was Beatles, Mary Quant. It was it, it there was there was a vibe, and at the same time, printing changed in that it was the point where lithography mm. came into its own. Before then, anything that was printed was done with movable type, so it was very rigid, and suddenly it became a situation where. You could draw, you could write, you could do press down letters. So it was very cheap to do very interesting design. I think the spirit would have been the same. The spirit would have been, how do we live an authentic Christian life, not deliberately bucking the system, but not allowing the system to buck us. But we did it with no money and no desire for money. I mean, yes, that hot and cold running mice was uh, a disused church hall by the arches at Vauxhall Station. One of the great moments, we had a coffee machine. Uh, one day we came in and we, it was a terrible smell coming from the coffee machine. So at lunchtime, one of the guys took it apart and a mouse had electrocuted itself inside across the hot water barrel and was, and was, and was gradually cooking. That was life as it started. Wow. Um, we, we paid our dues. I mean, we, yeah. I mean, the early copies of the magazine, the typesetting was done on a, on a typewriter. We couldn't even afford an electric typewriter, never mind that glories now of being able to do it on a on a laptop or whatever. And so through the night, we'd have a sharpened pencil sharpening up, making sure the little kerns on the T's and the S's could be seen, suck it down by hand. Work. We worked through the night continually just because it had to be done. Yeah. And it was fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure Tony Cummings was telling me that something to do with Marks and Spencer's underwear is involved in Buzz. Oh, yes. We had, yes. Well, that was, I wanted a, I wanted a gossip column. So I, I, what did I call it? Briefs by St. Michael. <laughs> St. Michael was the, was, was the Marks and Spencer's brand for underwear. Patron saint of underwear, as it was yeah, known, yeah, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, So it was, it was briefs by St. Michael, yeah. It was a little gossip column. It, it was fun, really. I, 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 it was a little joy that, that all the other publications, Christian publications, were Christian Herald and, you know, it, it, was, all, it was all Christian, 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 boring, 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 boring. And we weren't those people. Mm-hmm. We just weren't. I mean, we're Christian, but we were. It just yeah, yeah. didn't work for us. So, so Buzz was a joy. The thought that we became the largest circulation Christian magazine since the Welsh Revival or whatever, wow. or probably even before that, was incredible. It was called, it was called Buzz. And it wasn't quite putting two fingers up to the establishment, but I think it did. <laughs> it was such a great name. And it's such a pity that you changed. Well, you—I don't think you changed the name because it then morphed into 21st Century Christian. It was out of my—it was out of my hands. The view was, and I, I kind of got it. It was weird. I've got to say this carefully. I left, and at that point, circulation began to drop. Yes. And the person who took over at the top, no longer with us, uh, was an administrator who gradually took all the joy. And anyone with a bit of who knew what they were doing gradually went. Uh, but then the, the view was. 
that kids don't buy clothes from the same shop as their parents, were we going to get a new generation in? Uh, and I think there was some logic in that. But I think if it had changed its name and kept up its creativity and its edge, uh, if you compare if you compare the issues that followed, yeah. it just didn't have the spark or the joy or the edge or the vitality or the engagement. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the, probably the most influential book I've ever read was Neil Postman. There was a primer on Neil Postman, the communicator, the the guy who talks about um, uh, the medium is the message, and uh, he he spoke a lot about that magazines are things you don't, books are different, but magazines and newspapers, you don't read from front to back in a logical way. You you, you bathe in them. Yes. And and the reader wants engagement. Uh, and it had none of that. Yeah. In contrast, the current Christianity is doing a terrific job. Sam Hallis is really, really doing a great job. I look at that each time he comes, send him a message, Good stuff. Oh, he'll be dead chuffed with that. So that was the difference. I think it, I think it died because it, it's about people. You know, we we had people like Steve Goddard, uh, who you know, loads of edge, Tony Cummings, and others, Dave Roberts, people who just went to the edge a bit and were bright and interesting. Yeah, we would spend a whole probably a half a day as a small team just writing the headlines and the subheads because we wanted this to be read and we know that the only thing the only person who's interested in reading your letter is your mother you know no one else is going to read it and so you've got to work hard if you want someone to read it mm. so we we would work really hard to get headings that uh, had edge and vitality and puns and interest and subheads that meant you know i've got to, I've got to read this we put a lot of craft into it yeah yeah it was Archie the Eagle. Oh, we, when we inherited this, um, it hurts me now. When we inherited this church hall, mm. it was a dump. It was full of pews, which we threw out. I mean, they must have been worth a lot of money if we'd have known. Mm. But there was this huge wooden eagle, which was, you know, that the people would, in a church would put a Bible on. He was there. Yeah. So I gave him a personality and gave him his own column. <laughs> it was just, it was madness, you know. But it was fun, you know. And he commented on what he saw around. Got you. Where is that today? Yeah. You, you think of how much comedy and lightness and creativity is out there. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, we're made after a creative God yeah. who laughs a lot. Yeah. Well, I, I think about my time at Cross Rhythms and Chris Cole would have, he gave me a lot of leeway, let's put it that way, which is, yeah, yeah. Which is fantastic. How much then, in light of this, did you think at the time you had been a bit of a rebel? in the 60s, especially being a Christian rebel? No, I never I never thought myself as a rebel at all. Interesting. Ever. I just just did it, you know. I used to have a suede jacket with fringes down the arms when I walked to church, the, you know, with no tie. In those days, yeah. you know, it was it was considered, you know, there was never a sense of it. We, we were just who we were. No, we wouldn't have. In fact, very compliant at times, very patient in situations where... Churches were dull and boring, and we said, well, we'll stick it out yeah. as long as we can. Yeah. Spring Harvest, we could talk about that for a, a long time. But I'd like to come to Premier Radio, if that's all right, because you came on board to get it over the line. Yeah. For those that don't really know anything about Christianity in the UK, let alone radio, it was banned, basically. So what do you remember those times? It was banned. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. What do you remember those times? Well, well the, the circumstances were different. I mean... The, the way radio was uh, licensed and managed here, so different to America, for example, where you just go and buy a program and do anything you want with it. Here, you had to be licensed by the authority. And if you wanted a new license, 
well, the first thing was there was going to be a, a broadcasting act brought in to free up the radio because they were realizing that you couldn't live with four stations where you had all these radio waves waiting to be done. So they wanted to regulate it. So they produced proposals which said anyone can own a radio station unless unless you're religious, <laughs> which is like nonsense. And we argued with the, um, we, well, Gareth Littler worked the House of Lords and did really well. We worked the populace and uh, got, got petitions, you know, spring harvest, everyone signed petitions. We did all that. Uh, a group of us went to to, to see the, the minister involved in number 10. And as we came in, there were bishops leaving by the back door who told them not to let Christians have radio because they were frightened what evangelicals would do. Yeah. And I used to go in and say, well, of course, you've heard all the, you, you heard all the bad things about Christian radio in America, haven't you? And they go, yes. I said, well, really, what? I said, because there isn't anything. I said, all the scandals you're concerned about is on television. I said, there is no evidence anywhere in the world of Christians abusing radio. Oh, oh. Oh, so anyway, to, to, to my amazement, they changed the bill and we couldn't own a national station. But that was before digital came and that's all that's all changed now. Uh, and then I suppose my personal story is that I sat back and then I was working as a consultant, then working with a, a number of Christian agencies, helping them in their communication, fundraising and so on, including Spring Harvest. And there came a point where I just felt really unsettled. Uh, and I said to Rosie, my wife, I said, I feel pregnant. She said, uh, I can assure you what you're feeling isn't pregnancy, she said. And the, there's been a couple of times when I felt God spoken to me. And I'm careful because there are those people who claim God speaks mm. to them every 10 minutes. And, you know, I'm, I'm not there. But there have been a couple of times when, and, and this time I was, I, it was just a sense that God said, there is something new for you. You are going to give birth to something. But if your hands are full, I can't put them in your hands. So with Rosie's support, very bravely, uh, I resigned my three major clients, which were putting food on the table, and then waited. I gave them notice, so I was still getting some money in, in the short term. And then a, a great, my great administrative uh, assistant, brilliant woman, she sat down with me one time. She said, she said, so if you had a blank sheet of paper, what would you do? And I heard myself say, uh, start a Christian radio station for London. Ooh! <laughs> so I called together probably a dozen Christian leaders who I trusted mm -hmm. and said to them, this is what's in my mind. Please tell me if this is not on, stop me now. I don't want to waste any time. And every one of them said, you know, go for it. And we finally, we finally at the second go got a license, yeah, which was incredible, quite incredible. And there we were and Premier Radio was born. How did you feel the first time when you were turned down? Yeah, well, that, well, that was a challenge for leadership, you see, because a good leader prepares themselves for both eventualities. And uh, the answers were going to be given on a fax machine. And it was going to come chuntering through to see who we got. Uh, and the backstory is there were three licenses being granted, one for a small area in the middle of London, and then one for a bigger area, one for a very big area. And we decided if we applied for the small one, they'd probably give it. And we didn't want that. So we only applied for the outer two. We later discovered they got a earmark for the small one. If we'd have put it in, we'd have got that. So really through them, that's the backstory. So we've, I've got my team gathered around the fax machine as it comes chundling in, and we haven't got it. And I have to say to them, guys, this is the best news we could possibly have had. Because? Uh, and I had my answers. It gives us more time to raise the money we really need because we're behind in fundraising. 
gives us a chance to strengthen the team, gives us longer to get on air and get organised and find the studios we need, gives us an opportunity to find a, a, a new region, which means we'll have a big, bigger licence than we did before. But leadership is about selling hope. That's the best description I've ever had of being a leader. A leader sells, sell, can see where they're going and sells hope. Tell me more about selling hope. Well, it is. I mean, it's that's what leadership is. Leadership to me is is having a clear understanding of where you want to get to and helping the people around you to see it and see the hope that's involved. Yeah, but surely as a, a leader and trying to be pragmatic and also very positive, Surely there must have been times when you just wanted to give up or even question your faith. Well, maybe not in your case. No. What do you know? I, no, no. I, I, I'm probably odd. Uh, the, the three of us who were at the key at the at the start of the music ministry and Buzz magazine and everything else, for some reason, we all had a view that it, well, it's, there's always a way to get it done. There's always a way. Mm-hmm. We'll find a way. At times, that's got me into trouble. I think by biting off more than I could chew. But the, the, yeah, so no. I think conflicts with people at times have left me going, oh my life. But you just gotta you just you just gotta keep going. Yeah, no, you have. Like we said right at the beginning, you know, with Peter walking a water, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. Just don't give up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just don't give up. So, okay, from your premier radio days in and trying to get across the line and the second time by not giving up, you know, you gotta cross the line. I come to you and say, guess what? I want to form a, a radio station or I want to form a Christian ministry or something like that. What would you want to impart to me? I'd want to, li- I want to listen. I'd, I'd, I want to find out exactly why, what your skills are, what you, what you think the outcome is going to be, what the, what the value is going to be, where you're going to get your support. Can you get a small peer group around you uh, to counsel you and advise you and help you? Those are all the things. Is someone else already doing it? How do you bring it together? That's that's where I'd be, really. Those are, those would be my first thoughts. Why would you go on that tack? Because I think it's the right one. You you've got to ask all those questions. You know, you've got a clear set. You've got to have a clear set of objectives, and what difference it's going to make if you achieve it, and then how you're going to get there. So I'd, I'd so I'd want a budget and a plan, but I'd also want a small group rare to be counsellors. I I I despair of one person people. There's a lot of ministries out there now. Well, some. Well, you're not sure if you're supporting the the person or the cause. Okay, tell me more. I I, I can think of a situation of someone. I've got to be careful now, but but doing important stuff with AIDS in Africa, uh-huh. with them and a board, and not much more. And my kind of question is: If that guy goes, will this ministry carry on? Is, is your vision to support this person? or the objectives they're working to. And I think you've got to be very clear on those situations. Do you think there's a, a problem then if you name your ministry after yourself? Yeah, 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 it can be. But that's that's mainly evangelists who do that, I think, who because the, the name works in public and people come to hear them. Yeah. So I have no problem with the Billy Graham Association or Luis Palau or, or stuff like that. The rest of them I don't think do, whether it's Oasis or Sorted yeah, or... Yeah. So in light of... Everything you've learnt from you know, day one, starting up Buzz, to Spring Harvest, to Premier Agent, all these sorts of things. Are we as a church these days in a better frame of mind than when you were going through all these? What do you think? I think it's how you define church, because I think church is not just one you know, conglomerated unit. The church is diverse mm-hmm. now. So there's some parts of the church that are deep in deep trouble, deep doo-doo, and others that are doing very well. I mean, you've got four four streams that are growing. Elim, 
Vineyard, New Frontiers, and FIEC. Now, theologically, FIEC is miles away from the other three. So it's not necessary theology that's making the difference, you know. Fellowship of Independent Evangelical Churches. I should have said that. Yeah, thank you. I should have said <laughs> Well done. You're the journalist. No, Good it's not that. Man. When I became a Christian, reluctantly, it was in a very small church split. And uh, this church then affiliated themselves to the FIEC. So that's uh, how I know about it. So, so my, yeah, so my point is that it's, it's clarity and focus and vision. They're all committed to, to creating good disciples. Uh, and it's noticeable that the main denominations are hooked on the past and just can't shake it out unless you get into the H. Well, within the Church of England, you've got the whole, H, uh, whole Holy Trinity Brompton screeds, uh, stream who are feeding, creating new churches where church, a church has been struggling. So, so they're not doing bad. I think the decision of the Church of England to publicly broadcast Synod was one of the worst decisions it's ever made. Why? Well, wh why do we want the people outside the church to see our infighting? Don't you have family business you don't want people to know about? That's a very good point. You know, why do it? Uh, and we've got, we got enough problems with that and let anyone else see ours. And I think we've got big issues now like on in, in, inclusion and stuff like that, which, which gets in the way. Are we in a, are we in a better stage? <sighs> I spent the early part of my Christian life really gung-ho about the, the future of the church. Then I had several quite depressed years. Uh, and now I think I'm excited again because... Um, uh, we've moved out of, forgive the jargon, post-modernity. We've, mo we've moved from this view that there's only one basic story anyone can tell into the fact that we, we are now much more free. We're engaging people, small groups and everything. Yeah, when yeah. churches do it right, I've got a little church in Spain that's doing it right, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's, it's 35 people, but it's becoming 40. <laughs> yeah. The big picture, I think, is that, the Church of England, which is the main game here, is in trouble. And there will be eventually some kind of split if there isn't already one under the covers already. The Baptists mm. are struggling. The Methodists have almost gone. URC have almost gone. So I think it's all that denominational stuff. Meanwhile, the bigger churches are doing... I'm really impressed with what I see in places like New Frontiers. I don't buy into every piece of their theology, but then no one buys into every piece of mine. So that's all right. You know, but on, on the core stuff, we're agreed and we just go on with yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Well, here's the thing then, because right at the very beginning, Peter, uh, you know, I say that the podcast is to encouraging conversation and it's for those who go or don't go to church and for those that are disillusioned, of which I meet many people now who are walking around saying, well, I can't go to church. I still believe in Jesus, but I don't go there anymore. Yeah, yeah. So I have now got a manifesto here given to me by the government. I need to sort out the church so that everyone who feels disillusioned, whatever, can go back to church. I'm thinking... I am going to contact Peter Meadows because he's a great <laughs> consultant. So I come to you and I say, Peter, it's like this. How much money you got to spend? <laughs> oh, you name it. Oh, 10, right. 20, 50, a pound. You know, I can go a bit more than that. What do we do? I, I, I think, again, it's such a, a disparate, you know, churches are churches are churches. They're, they're, they're all so different and you can't work with it. I was intrigued with them. Um, with a little exercise a youth group was given in America. They were told... Um, uh, you, you've you've gone away on a on a retreat as a youth group, you know, all all thirty of you. And news has just reached you that uh, uh, there's been an explosion, and your church's building has been destroyed, and all the leaders with it. But the insurance is a hundred thousand dollars, 
how are you going to spend it? <laughs> I thought it was a great, that was a great exercise. Great exercise. Well, what was the answer? I don't know. I, I, that was just a question. I never saw yeah, it. Yeah. Probably had a million answers. What would I say? I would, it's simply, I would say, make Jesus the main thing. Be obedient to what he said. I mean, I'm, I'm fed up with people leaving off a bit of the Great Commission. So go into all the world and preach the gospel, baptizing in the name of the Father. And then the next bit says, teaching them every to obey everything I've taught you. No one does that. Teach them to obey everything I've taught you. Our teaching should mainly be helping them to be obedient to Jesus. Yes. That's what it's supposed to be about. And I'd make sure the Gospels were there. would emphasize uh, what we can do to equip leaders uh, at every level trying to develop, you know, lay people of finding out their gifts and putting them at work and, and working on a cell structure. Yeah, yeah. That would that would be my encouragement. And don't argue about non-essentials. You mentioned the Great Commission. You know, I like the actual tag online uh, that's a, given apparently by Francis of Assisi, and that is that and if all else fails, use words. Yeah, I don't like that. It's complete nonsense. <laughs> You're right. Well, tell me. Come on, <laughs> then. Come on, tell me more. <laughs> Wherever do you find anywhere in the New Testament people who didn't use words to, come to, to, to tell their story? Peter puts it best, live lives which provoke questions and be ready for the answers. But the idea that the gospel is, can be understood without words is a complete nonsense. And you see, I took it as a different meaning for that. We've got it, but you're, you're supposed to live it. Oh, you must live it. Yeah, people should see you're Christian. That's a, that's a bit about provoking you know, I mean, the prodigal son story is told because uh, the, the Pharisees are upset that Jesus is having a party. Mm. You know, he's having a party with, with the, the sinners and the, the tax collectors. How often do we have activities which cause people around us to ask questions? He did. And came the answer. So it, it is about living lives which, which can only be explained in terms of people saying, what is it? But I, I don't think the big picture can be fixed. You know, I think I think you just got to do it at that sort of level. Can can established churches change their structure? I don't know. Uh, I spent I've spent quite a time worrying at Spring Harvest that we were helping people to do better things they shouldn't be doing in the first place. Such as what? <laughs> you know, one man leadership. You know, failing to equip lay people to do the stuff. How to run a a better Sunday service? You know, when we should be helping people to live. We should be we should be continually saying. Uh, it's Sunday and Monday's coming. Yes. As opposed to it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. Sunday has to equip people for Monday. And most of the theology people have, and blessed thoughts, doesn't get anywhere near that. And where, where it is happening, good things are happening. So you said you were depressed, and I presume you mean depressed as to the pressures that were on you regarding what was going on in Christian land at the time. Were you ever disillusioned with your faith? No. Disappointed. Occasionally, you're disappointed that people don't live up to what they should be. But then God's probably disappointed with me at times and still loves me. I, th I think it's, no, not disillusioned. No. I'm a very sunny person, really. I just think, let's do this, find a way, and I'll hang in. I've been, I've been in churches where it's been frustrating, but all the while you see hope for change. Yeah, yeah. You stick in it. So for those that are listening today that are disillusioned, with what's going on in church and they feel they just can't go back to church at the moment, what would you say? Well, I would say, how are you defining church? If you mean being part of, you know, a big Sunday worship event, I would ask why. And I'm sure there are good reasons why. 
But I would want to ask why, because there won't be the same answer to each person, Mm -hmm. I wouldn't have thought. But if they've been disappointed by leaders, and I've got some good friends who are in exactly your category, burnt out by a new church demanding much of them 20 years ago, and they've got a vibrant faith, but don't go Mm -hmm. anywhere near church. Interestingly, of that couple, his wife died 18 months ago. He was rescued by his local church. And he's now thoroughly immersed in it and having a lovely time. So I would say, I would say, focus on Jesus. Find a couple more people like you. Uh, there was probably one of the best times in my life was when there were about a dozen of us who were all between church mm. for different reasons. That the churches we've been in didn't work for us, or we didn't work for them, and we informally called ourselves the lifeboat, and we did home group, you know, for weeks. And gradually supported one another. And we all, in the end, found places which we were comfortable with. Some people may not, you know. But I I would say focus on Jesus. Live the Jesus life. Look look for one or two other people. Try and focus on the good stuff rather than the bad stuff. Because there's plenty of bad stuff around. If, if If you're disappointed by people, just remember, you know, that Jesus is better than that. Yeah. Getting back very quickly, this is just going to be a little two-minute thing about music, and then we'll get to the final question because our time is almost up. Final questions. I sound a bit like Paul, don't I? Finally, Finally yeah, yeah. You know, knowing that it's going to be another three or <laughs> more pages. <laughs> what instrument did you do in the band, The Unfettered? I owned the first Les Paul guitar ever to come into the UK. No. Yeah, yeah. Now, now this Les wouldn't understand that, but that is um, something really? else, isn't it? Something else. I was in a I was in a I was in a band. It was a it, it was the usual covers band in the sixties. Yeah, just slightly pre Beatles. The the usual four piece lineup. I was a strummer. I was a good strummer, but not much more than a good strummer. And then we all wanted to get kitted out with better better instruments, and we went to Boozy and Hawks in Tottenham Court Road. And Tommy Steele, mm-hmm. before the time of many people hearing this, had yeah. got a bunch of guitars shipped over from Gibson to the UK to choose, and he didn't choose that one. And I chose it. I had the first Les Paul. Did it cost half a sixpence? Yeah, yeah, it cost a lot more than that. Actually, it was wasn't about pricing. If I still had it now, they're going for seventy grand now. Heartbreaking. I sold I sold it for about two hundred quid to the guitarist with the Bee Gees. Oh, really? Yeah, and I paid probably what I paid for it then. Yeah, yeah. It's a heartbreaker, oh, wow. really. It was a bit lovely. The first Bee Gees were, was the name of the band, which included. Correct. Guitar drummer. and drummer, correct. And the, it was the guitarist there. And I've seen, I've seen YouTube of him playing my guitar. Wow, <sighs> that's that. Barker of the UFO. If anyone wants to hear a really good Bee Gees track, the B side of Massachusetts yeah, in brackets, yeah. the days of light went out. It's called Barker of the UFO. Oh, nineteen sixty-seven. But yes, they were a band, not the just three brothers yeah. at the time. So musically, then, in light of your pedigree and everything else, what do you think about Christian music today? Oh, it's astounding. Uh, in terms of its quality of musicianship, mm. people are writing great lyrics. I mean, it's, it's it's again a bit like the church. It's a mixed bag. You know, I can pick you out lots of stuff which is pretty vacuous, you know, with repeated words, no theology. But the fact is, if you choose to sing the wrong songs, it's your fault. But there's lots of really good, thoughtful, biblically infused songs there done to a very high quality of musicianship and production. And I'm sad when the production takes over, when there's more form than content. Yes. We all know that happens. And we all know that you can manipulate people's emotions with enough form 
and you don't need content to do that. Leaving that stuff aside, there's enough really good stuff, you know, to sink your teeth into. I'm smirking because I remember the very first day in my starter career at UCB, and I remember saying to Program Controller Anne on my very first day, I said, you know, I can't stand Christian music. And she said, oh, don't worry, dear, you'll get used to it. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> There's some good stuff there. I mean, there is, I mean, there are so many genres out there. Yeah. Is, there is rubbish, but that doesn't, doesn't survive now. I mean, I, I think it's a shame that the richness of Kendrick, it's, it's, we're a bit fad and faddish, you know, so you can have great stuff, but because it's not new, it, it gets dumped. I mean, my, my early days, if you sung something, if you sang a hymn by someone who was still alive, you were questioned, you know, had to be dead to be any good. And the huge commercial interest to bring new stuff out, the amount of money that's out there by some of these people, which is, you know, they're accountable to God, not to me. Mm. There's some really good stuff there, rich stuff. That's good to hear. So church is still going, and hopefully many people will be knocking on your door in weeks, months, years to come to say, some advice, please, Peter, on what I should be doing, which would be great. And <laughs> as I said earlier, I could listen to you for hours, but uh, I noticed that the time is beating us, unfortunately. You mentioned that someone has to be dead in order for us to sing their song, which is a very nice link in to our Christian hero slot, whereby I ask our guest to name their Christian hero, someone who has to be dead, you know, so we know exactly what's happened to them. So Peter yeah. Meadows. Who is your Christian hero, please? He was an evangelist. He's the father of Tom Reese. He was, he was an evangelist in the 60s, came out of the Hildenborough Hall movement, which won't mean much to people. He had a series of, series of meetings in Sunday nights in town when the theatres used to be closed on Sundays, and he would take over a theatre in London, and I went. I was in advertising. What was drilled into me on advertising is that good is not good enough. Excellent is just about all right, mostly, but it has to be enormously good. It, you have to pay attention to every detail. It's got to be carefully thought out. It's got, it's got to be beautiful. And um, so I go, and I'm used to church being pretty poor. They're very opposite of everything there. I'm sitting in the seats, and it's, he's on a stage, and he comes forward, and he's going to read the, read the Bible. And I'm aware that he's memorized it. He's reading a passage he's memorized. And then he says, before I speak, bow your heads in prayer. We pray briefly. And when we look up, I realize the lighting on the stage has changed. And it's now dim behind him so that there's just a spotlight on him. So you've got all the focus. Mm -hmm. And my mind went, it's all right to do things well. It's all right to be thoughtful about what we do as Christians. We haven't just got to bumble through and do our best. We can actually think about, we look at what we see and how we present ourselves. And that was to me, he was a hero to me because he, he freed me up to believe that the disciplines I'd learned in secular life had an equal place in the Christian life as long as they were for the glory of God and not for human manipulation. So Tom Reese, he was someone, I mean, before our time, he was, I mean, I was 19, that was a long time ago, but he was one of the first people to use Christian bands, oh, really? you know, in his presentation. The Peacemakers. He was old school, thorough, simple, clear, good illustrations. Wow. But it was the sheer simple attention to detail yeah. that made me go, yeah, okay, that's what I use in my professional life. This is all right for the church. And I, it's got a principles I've tried to apply ever since. Is it good enough? Where was he from? He would have, I don't know where he was from. Google him. Yeah, I have to. Google him. 
Justin Rees is, is his, was his son, who now I think is ministers. He's probably even retired now. He was, went to Canada. But Tom Rees was was one of a number of, I think, Church of England evangelists who didn't you didn't wear dog colours or do any of that. But just was a he was a, a good communicator, but cared about the detail, which liberated me. And so that I can Google him later on. How do we spell Reese, please, Peter? It might be R W S. R W S, I think. As opposed to R H Y S or something like that. Lovely. My spelling's bad. I'm dyslexic, but that's the best I can do for you. Well, I'm going to be Googling him in a few minutes' time. What's going to be on your horizon for the next few months ahead, Peter? I don't, I'm learning to live again, really, if, if, if I'm honest. I mean, the first four months after your wife dies, there's a lot to do, an enormous amount to do legally and everything else, sorting stuff out you wanted to sort out. So I, I'm back now. My priority is to learn to live again in a, in a, in a different way. It'll, it'll, it'll be different. It's it's not what it was, but it is what it is. Mm-hmm. And I want to be sanely productive. I want to be useful. Throughout most of my life, I've got up in the morning and said, dear God, if, you, if I can be useful today, uh, that's okay, please. And if not, I'll get on with life anyway. Um, so not much. I mean, I, mean, I go back to Spain for 10 days to be with the church there, you know, where I'll be preaching and encouraging and helping. Then we've got Christmas. I'm heading to Egypt for seven days with my daughter and her family after egypt lovely then then i'll be back and i'll do a bit more spain <laughs> and then I've got my oldest son and daughter will teach in bangkok they teach at a big private english-speaking school there mm-hmm. where they've been there for 10 years so rosie and i have been going out every year apart from covid so i'm going out with them for, for about three weeks so that'll be good Brilliant. I, I'm, I'm too old to do new projects i'm I find just mentoring people and encouraging and helping people yeah. is really works. I just, you know, squeeze up what I know and squeeze it out all over them. And uh, yeah. I'm delighted when people come, you know, a few people like Steve Legg of Sorted and Michael um, from uh, Acorn and, and stuff. Happy to have a little chat with me and I put in what I can. Sometimes it turns out to be helpful, which is quite nice. That's lovely. And how's your cooking? It's not bad. Uh, I've got a slow cooker. I was ready to do a big slow cooker today, and I had my recipe, and I discovered I was three potatoes short. So that's going to be there for tomorrow. No. Yes, I, 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 yeah, the cooking's all right. It's nothing exotic, but it's all right. Get you through. Peter, I can't thank you enough for spending so much time. Martin, thank it's you. It's been phenomenal. And uh, I look forward to hearing from you again soon. If you wouldn't mind, that'd be brilliant. Fine. Anything I can do to help. Thank you, Peter. Cheers. Cheers, my friend. Go well. Go well. Cheers. Bye. Bye.